This morning we turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2 to hear about the spiritual resurrection that God has worked in us. We're looking at the doctrine sometimes referred to as irresistible grace. And God, by His sovereign power, makes us alive in Christ. And so... We see the great unity of Father, Son, and Spirit in our salvation. We've seen that God the Father chose us before the creation of the world to be made holy and blameless in His sight. We speak of unconditional election. And we've seen that God sent His own beloved Son to die for the ones the Father chose, to give His life as substitute for them on the cross, to atone for all their sins completely. And now we see that the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son, comes to give that life of Christ to all who are dead in their sin, that is, all the ones God has chosen and all the ones Christ died for. And he brings them effectively, infallibly, to life in Christ. Now, I'd like to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 13. We use as a pulpit translation the New King James. It's not known for adding words to smooth things out, but in this case it does. And so if you have the New King James, you'll notice the third, fourth, and fifth words are italicized, which means they're not in the original. Those words actually don't come until verse 5. But because the Apostle Paul writes a long sentence and the main verb doesn't come till verse 5, the good news that we're made alive, the New King James puts it at the front to make it easier for you to read. I'm going to skip it. Because the weight of what Paul's saying is that we had no chance of being alive in ourselves, but in Christ, together with Christ, verse 5, we're made alive. So I'll read it that way. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1, God's word. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us Alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
God's word. If you turn with me in the smaller forms and prayers book that's in front of you, our forms and prayers book to page 272, then you are in the Canons of Dort, which if you're visiting with us is one of the three confessions that we make use of. A confession is a summary statement of what the Bible teaches, and this summary statement was written in response to a controversy that minimized God's grace and gave way too much credit to man. And so this was the response to, in this case, to a teaching that suggested that God gives some level of grace or some ability to all people, and it's up to all people to respond and decide whether to truly believe or not. And we reject on the basis of God's word, saying that God actually works regeneration before we do a thing. He gives new life. So we're at Article 10 through 13 here, page 272 at the bottom. Article 9 had said that many, in hearing the the good news of the gospel, don't respond in faith. Then Article 10 says, the fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man, as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace for faith and conversion, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. No, it must be credited to God. Just as from eternity he chose his own in Christ, so within time he effectively calls them, grants them faith and repentance, and having rescued them from the dominion of darkness, brings them into the kingdom of his Son, in order that they may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and may boast not in themselves but in the Lord, as apostolic words frequently testify in Scripture. Article 11. Moreover, when God carries out this good pleasure in his chosen ones, or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit so that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, But by the effective operation of the same regenerating spirit, he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. He infuses new qualities into the will, making the dead will alive, the evil one good, the unwilling one willing, and the stubborn one compliant. He activates and strengthens the will so that, like a good tree, it may be enabled to produce the fruits of good deeds. Article 12, and this is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead, and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in the scriptures, which God works in us without our help. But this certainly does not happen only by outward teaching, by moral persuasion, or by such a way of working that after God has done his work, it remains in man's power whether or not to be reborn or converted. Rather, it is an entirely supernatural work, one that is at the same time most powerful and most pleasing, a marvelous, hidden, and inexpressible work which is not lesser than or inferior in power to that of creation or of raising the dead, as Scripture, inspired by the author of this work, teaches. As a result, all those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous way are certainly, unfailingly, and effectively reborn and do actually believe, 
And then the will, now renewed, is not only activated and motivated by God, but in being activated by God, is also itself active. For this reason, man himself, by that grace which he has received, is also rightly said to believe and to repent. Finally, Article 13, in this life, believers cannot fully understand the way this work occurs. Meanwhile, they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God, they do believe with the heart and love their Savior. Should we bow and ask for God's help? Our Father in heaven, what glorious truth we stand before. We praise you for new life given by Christ, and we pray that that life would be strengthened today and that we might be more humble and more delighted to declare and boast only in our Lord Jesus. Pray, Lord, where this new life does not prevail, where you have not yet, God, granted new life, we pray that you would. For Lord, we know that you bring among your people those who need to be made alive, that you cause to be born into the covenant community, and those who grow up in the church and are being made alive. And we pray, God, then, for the regenerating work of your Spirit, even among us. For, Lord, we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Boys and girls, in the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Ezekiel, and he has a great vision. God takes him and he sets him in a valley. And the valley is not noticed for its beauty, but for the gruesome thing that the prophet sees in the valley. He sees what looks like an army that has been utterly destroyed It looks like dead bodies lying all over the place. Actually, not bodies, but skeletons, bones. Ezekiel is set in a valley of bones. And God makes him pass around these bones and inspect these bones and observe these bones. And what Ezekiel notices about these bones is that that they're dry, they're dead. There's There's no skin on them, there's no muscle, there's no tendons, they're... They're sun-bleached bones. They've been lying there for a long time. They have no life in them. And then God asks this prophet a curious question. He says, Son of man, can these bones live? If anybody on earth brings you to a valley of bones and they ask you the question, can these bones live? The answer is, must be unambiguous. The answer is no, these bones are not about to get up and be reconstituted as living human beings. But if the living God of the covenant, the Lord Almighty, who kills and makes alive, asks you the question, can these bones live? Then you have to answer in a very careful way. And so Ezekiel does that, and he says, O Lord God, you alone know. You alone know. And then God says to his prophet, prophesy to them. You prophesy to those dead bones. And and so Ezekiel begins to preach to the bones. And suddenly the bones are rattling. The bones are coming back together. And the bones are are, are relined with with sinew and, and muscle and skin. And then God says, now call to the wind. Which, you know, in Hebrew, the word wind, just like in Greek, actually, the Old Testament language and the New Testament language, the word wind, breath, and spirit are the same word. And so now he's to prophesy to the wind, to the breath, to come. And as he proclaims, calls for the breath to come, the breath of life comes into these bones, into these bodies, and they live. 
And God says to his people, this is a picture, what I'm going to do for you. Right now you're off in captivity and you look back at Jerusalem and says, it's hopeless. It's just a valley of bones. And God says, I'm going to bring you out of your tombs and you're going to live. See, brothers and sisters, from the beginning to the end of Scripture, the message is that salvation belongs to the Lord. That dead sinners cannot live. They're not about to live. What Adam and Eve did in the garden was fatal and eternally fatal. Committed suicide for all of us. But the God of life will give life to the dead. And that's what we're looking at this morning. This glorious truth of God's effectual grace that he spiritually raises from the dead those who are spiritually dead, that we might boast in his name. Let's look at this this morning, considering, first of all, the powerful rescue, the powerful rescue that God gives us, and then the wonderful restoration. It's a restoring work, the wonderful restoration God works, and then the result, that God gets the exclusive glory for all of this. Well, we are not Ezekiel. We're not set in a valley of dry bones, but in Ephesians 2, we actually kind of are. We're, we're put in a cemetery, as it were, and, and the, the Apostle Paul now is, is calling upon us to look around and to inspect the bones, as it were. And he, he wants to remind us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, what we were like. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Not sick or disabled, not <clears throat> on the way to death, But dead, dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins, not physically dead yet, but spiritually dead. Life is is to have fellowship with God. Life is union of the soul with God, but death is to be alienated from God and have no life in God and no fellowship with God. And the apostle says that's what you were. And then he says in verse 2, you once walked according to the course of this world. So you're following this whole world of rebellion. Also, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. And so, the Lord here couldn't bring a greater condemnation on our old state. We were slaves to Satan. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air, who, the spirit who's now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We were in bondage to a different master. Not that Satan has some equally ultimate power with God, but that Satan is the executioner of God's judgment. And we were under God's judgment. We were under the power of the evil one, the power of sin, the power of death. And then the Apostle Paul says, we, uh, verse 3, were conducting ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh of the mind. So we were, were living according to, to all the, the sinful desires of our old nature, that nature alienated from God and hostile to God. And then finally, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. We were the objects of God's destruction. We were dead and devoid of all hope. But then into this cemetery of stench and decay, comes the fragrance of life when the apostle says in verse 4, but God. And we love those interruptions found throughout Scripture in the most distressing circumstances. Read many of the Psalms, paints the, the bleak picture of his circumstance, and then, but you, Lord. 
And it changes everything, doesn't it? But God. And here we see that in the middle of our hopelessness and helplessness, God does for us what we can never do for ourselves. God makes alive. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Made us alive with the life of Christ. The life that dwells in Christ became our life. We gain life in Jesus. Wonderful thing God has done. He's done the impossible. He's performed a spiritual resurrection. Now, boys and girls, you remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus? Remember he heard Lazarus was sick and he delayed going. He waited till Lazarus died. died. Then he came and Mary and Martha were so upset and, and Jesus even wept. But then Jesus said to bring him to the tomb and then he told him to take away the stone. And the sisters of Jesus said, you don't want to do that. It's been three days. It's going to stink. His body's decaying. It has no life. It's, Jesus said, remove the stone. Didn't I tell you? You'll behold the power of life. They take away the stone in Jesus and a loud voice says, Lazarus, come out. Can these bones live? Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes walking out of that tomb and has the grave clothes taken off of him. And soon Jesus is at table, fellowship with Lazarus. His lifeless body comes to life. Christ displaying that he has the power of life to give his life to what's dead and to make it alive. And Jesus is doing the same thing today now. What he did for Lazarus physically, he's done for us spiritually. When in the preaching of God's word, he says to our souls, live. And they live. They come to life. It's a glorious work. And that's work of Christ precedes anything that we do. We do not repent of sin. We do not grieve of sin. We do not believe on Jesus. We do not trust in the gospel until we're made alive. Until we're made alive. Lazarus did obey Jesus and came out of the tomb. But his cooperation was preceded by what we call the monergistic operation of the Lord. The one person working. Not cooperatively, but Christ by his own power working upon Lazarus who passively received new life. And that's important. You know there are many people today who think that that regeneration or being born again is what you get when you decide to believe. So the gospel comes to you. Maybe you have some measure of grace that's operative somehow, who knows how, and, and then it's up to you to believe. And if you choose to believe, then God will regenerate you. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, in a book, uh, Grace Unknown, he tells about his professor and mentor. He often talks about John Gershner. John Gershner. But he tells the story of John Gershner sitting in class under his professor. And the professor went to the blackboard and he wrote in big letters, Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration, being born again, precedes, it comes before faith. And Gershner thought, I guess my professor just inadvertently put it backwards because we all know that faith precedes regeneration. But no, he learned that day in class from the Word of God that regeneration comes before our faith. And that changed the whole course of his life and his theology and 
course, influenced Dr. Sproul. In Article 9 of the Canons, it says, you know, why do some people not believe the gospel? And the gospel is preached most sincerely to them. It's because the gospel fails or Jesus fails. No, it's because their hearts are hard. But then Article 10, why do some believe when the gospel is preached to them? Why do those believe? Is it because they're better people? They're more cooperative? Is it because they found it within themselves to believe? No. It's because the Spirit sovereignly comes and gives to them life. Life. The fact that others who are called through the ministry of the gospel do come and are brought to conversion must not be credited to man as though one distinguishes himself by free choice from others who are furnished with equal or sufficient grace. No, it must be credited God. It's a miracle of regeneration. And that's the good news, that that for the elect of God, God doesn't just cause the gospel to be preached outwardly. Right? There's, there's many people who will not go to heaven who have heard the gospel preached to them outwardly. They've heard the external call, the general call. They've sat under the preaching of the word. But for the elect, for them to be saved... They need not only the outward call that's audible to our ears, they need the internal call of the Spirit who effectively draws them to the Lord, giving to them a new heart. Article 11 says, Moreover, when God carries out this this good pleasure in his chosen ones or works true conversion in them, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly, But he enlightens the minds, he opens the closed heart, and he makes the dead will alive. If all we had was the external preaching, be like one of us this afternoon going out in a cemetery and and saying to to all the graves, Arise, live! And we know, of course, nothing would happen. Somebody might come out to you and say, What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm commanding all these to come out of their graves. And somebody would say, You know, They're dead. They're not able to come out. But in Ezekiel 37, when Ezekiel preaches the breath of God, the life of God, the spirit of God, comes upon the bodies and they live. It's God's work. It's God's sovereign work. It's compared in Scripture, or called in Scripture, a new birth, right? You must be born again. Sometimes that's preachers of saying, you've got to get yourself born again. That's not the point. Christ is making the point that you have to be born again or you don't live. You'll never come into the kingdom unless you're born again. But how does that come? Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus, it's like, it's like the wind. It moves where it wants, powerfully, mysteriously. You can't control it. But it gives that birth from above or that birth again. You know, the nature of birth is that we are passive, right? None of us conceived ourselves and none of us birthed ourselves. And God says, that's what this new life is like. You don't give it to yourself. You are passive and God acts upon you. James 1.18 says, Of his own will, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. See, God does not simply make salvation possible and then leave to the sinner, the most decisive step in the whole process. I mean, if you don't embrace or understand scriptures as we confess them in the canons, then the alternative is to say that God does all this stuff, this choosing, this sending a son to die, this giving of the Spirit, 
He, he gives it all to you, but then he leaves to the sinner. The sinner, the wicked, hostile sinner, the most important step of all to decide whether any of this will be effective. Well, that wouldn't be salvation. That would be eternal death for us. It's not man's free will that chooses of itself. It's not that some believe and some don't, and the ones who believe do so because they're able to distinguish themselves from those who don't believe. They find it within themselves to choose to believe. The Bible compares it to a new birth. The Bible also compares it to a work of creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. What is creation like? Not created matter, but the act of creation. The apostle says in the previous chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God stood before his world, the matter all darkness, and God spoke, let there be light. And creating out of nothing, God created light. The darkness didn't make light. God created light. God brought into existence that which had no existence beforehand. And so in Scripture we have these three powerful metaphors that to be made new or be given life is equivalent to resurrection from the dead. To be made alive in Christ is equivalent to be born again. And to be made alive in Christ is equal to being made a new creation. And in all three of those instances, it's not a cooperative effort between God and man, between God and the baby that's being conceived, or between God and or Jesus and the dead body of Lazarus. It's not a cooperative effort. Uh, not between God and light. God doesn't work with light, so that light will give itself light. In all of these, the sovereign God acts upon which never would be but for God's power, might. And that's what the Bible compares the giving of new life to. It's all of God. It's not of man. It's a powerful, glorious work. And there's so many more evidences in Scripture we could... Just look at the word call throughout the New Testament. It almost always, I think, means not call in terms of the outward call, but it means the effectual call. God called us to himself, right? You can read the book of Acts, Acts eleven eighteen, which declares that repentance is a gift given by God. Acts sixteen fourteen declares that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe what Paul was teaching. Salvation of the Bible is never simply that Christ died, and now, you know, the rest of it hangs on us to accept it. That's never the message. Message of Scripture is that Christ's intercession and his sending of the Spirit to give life are part and parcel with the death of Christ on the cross. These all go together. What a supremely powerful work of grace it is that the blind eyes are opened, the, the deaf ears are, are given to hear, the, 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 the slaves of Satan are set free. This is what salvation is. So no one seeks the Lord. Until the Lord gives them life in Christ. Why do some believe when others, when so many don't? 
because God by his spirit has come and given them life in Jesus. And why has God done that? The Apostle Paul says, because he's rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us. Not a bare act of power, but an act of extraordinary mercy and incomprehensible love that God, that God who is great in love, loved us. He loved us so much to look upon our corpses, our spiritual corpses, and say, live. Live and be my people. Well, secondly, this morning we have to think about this act of God as an act of restoration. There are some who, upon hearing everything I've just preached, would say then, so I guess man is just a robot or a puppet on a string. Man, it's not man's faith that saves. God just does. He treats like a rocker block and moves them here, moves them there, like a robot and programs them, or like a, a puppet and pulls them around. I guess God just drags people into heaven. I guess faith and repentance don't even matter. To which we say, no, faith and repentance are necessary. Can't be saved apart from them. Well, then how do these go together? Ephesians 2.8 says that we're saved through faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. So how does this go together? That God's completely sovereign in salvation, and yet faith and repentance are necessary for salvation. That God doesn't treat us as less than human. And the answer is that when God performs this renewing work of giving life, it's a work of recreation or restoration. That language is important. Titus 3.5, that we're renewed. God doesn't take away our will or take away our mind or take away our heart to make us a, a robot or a puppet. Remember when Adam and Eve fell into sin? When they fell into sin and they died, it's not when they, you know, they ate of the fruit, they spiritually died instantaneously under God's judgment. It's not that they lost their will or no longer had a mind or no longer had a heart, right? They, they weren't the scarecrow or the tin man. They were still humans, right? Still humans. But now their will chose against the Lord, and now their heart was hostile to God, and now their minds were darkened. Sinful man remains man, which is actually the reason that sin is so offensive to God. Right? When, when, when we sin, it's not a mechanical failure. Right? And you don't, you don't get angry. Maybe you do, but you really shouldn't get angry at your car when, when it's not doing what it's supposed to do. Right? It's not a person. It's not a, even an animal. It's, it's got a mechanical issue. When we sin, we sin from the heart. When we sin, we choose to sin. When we sin, we, we choose because we're thinking a wrong way about God. So when you read in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in sin, we're all born dead, we all walk in death until we're made alive, but deadness doesn't mean that, that we don't exercise any of our faculties actively. We're not passive. We're not passively disobedient to God. We're actively disobedient. And so when you understand that, that as dead sinners, we're still active with mind, will, and heart, 
Then you can understand when God makes us alive, he doesn't dispense with our heart, mind, and will, but he renews them. He makes them truly alive to himself again. He transforms us. And it's a glorious work. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. He opened her heart. He didn't take away her heart. He opened her heart, right? The Bible speaks about the enlightening work of the Spirit. He doesn't take away our minds. We're just robots, get programmed to believe on Jesus. No, he enlightens our minds so we understand how glorious the gospel is. This is how the Lord works. He works transforming us into the true humans we were made to be. Article 16 will say, However, just as by the fall man did not cease to be man, endowed with intellect, will, and just as sin which spread through the whole human race did not abolish the nature of, of the human race, but distorted it, spiritually killed it, so also this divine grace of regeneration does not act in people as if they were blocks and stones, nor does it abolish the will and its properties or coerce a reluctant will by force, but it spiritually revives, heals, and reforms. And so you see, when, when, when the Lord gives us the new heart, we do now truly love the Lord. When the Lord gives us a new heart, we do believe on Jesus. When the Lord gives us a new heart, we do repent and put trust in the Savior. And so rightly man is said to believe and repent. But what came first? The answer, the new heart. The work of regeneration. So the evidence of that work of regeneration in us is that we do love the Lord. And we do repent of sin. And we do believe on Jesus. That's the evidence of the regeneration. It's the fruit of the new life. In this astonishing work that God does. And the Lord does it infallibly. That's why we call it irresistible grace. People say, well, don't you know the Bible says you can resist the Spirit? Yeah, we say we do know that. We're not saying that no one resists the Spirit. We all resist the Spirit. We're saying that the Spirit, in the end, overcomes the dead, hard hearts of the elect and gives them life. It's invincible grace. Invincible grace. And where does all this lead then? Well, it leads to the glory, the glorifying of God. That finally this morning... Does that sound easy? Apparently it's not. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's hard to beat down pride, isn't it? It's hard to beat down our human pride. We want just a little part for ourselves, something we can boast in. And the Apostle Paul, bam, 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 till there's nothing left for us. So we all cry out, it's all of you, God. It's not of me. It's all of you. I would never have lived in a million years by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast that we might give glory to the Lord. Remember where the Apostle Paul began in Ephesians chapter 1? He said that God chose us in Christ. And this was all to the praise of his glorious grace. And you know, I was thinking this week that that's our calling to magnify the Lord and for us to 
to give glory to God, which we should. And, and that is the, the purpose of our lives, our renewed lives, to give glory to God. And I was thinking how, you know, these doctrines of grace are for that purpose, that we could sing God's praises. But I was arrested by the first sentence of John Calvin's sermon on Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, when he starts out this way, St. Paul has shown so far that our salvation is the true mirror in which to behold the infinite glory of God, for it is his will to be known by his goodness above all things. It dawned on me, it's not just that God is saving us by grace alone so that we'll praise him in front of the world, but God is saving us by grace alone that we might know him above all in terms of his goodness to us. Did you hear that? Paul has shown so far that our salvation is the true mirror in which to behold the infinite glory of God, for it is his will to be known by his goodness, to be known by his goodness above all things. It's not just that God wants to get glory before the world, but he wants to make the hearts of his people sing and say, I know God above all in terms of his goodness. Because salvation is the very mirror in which I see who God is. That when I was dead in my sin, hostile to God, hating him, never in a million years going to call upon him for anything, he saved me. And so it's my delight to give him eternal thanks because of his great love with which he loved me. Because of extraordinary mercy which he saved me. Because of his undeserved favor, his grace, by which he rescued me. What a glory to think about the wonders of our triune God in perfect cooperation, Father, Son, and Spirit, in all of that grace. That the Father should choose us before the creation of the world, should look upon the whole lump of sinful humanity, And choose, though all are worthy of hell, should choose some to save based on nothing respectable in them, but only because of his own love and good pleasure. He should choose to save some of these objects of his wrath. And then he should love them so much as to send his own beloved son for them. The living God, the creator, who could make a million worlds and desert this one forever, chooses to send to the depths of hell his own beloved son, to take the place of a creature, a hostile, ugly, wicked creature. And then having done that, that God the Holy Spirit should come. To come to a people who hated the very Savior God sent and nail him to a cross that should come into those closed hearts and open them and make them alive, that they might receive the grace bestowed on them. But the Apostle Paul should have to say it so many times over, by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, no boasting. And that reminds us how frequently our hearts are cold and indifferent the greatest love and mercy ever shown. And wouldn't it be a sad thing if after studying all these doctrines of grace, we 
pat ourselves on the back that we have some reformed doctrine, that we understand the Bible correctly. And that's where it ends. Our coldness and indifference reminds us how much we need grace because we cannot even thank God as he deserves to be thanked. But by the grace he works in us that we, his work, his workmanship, are created, recreated in Christ for the good work of believing and giving thanks. But when God, by his Spirit, works in us in such a way that we begin to see even a glimpse of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, then our hearts soar and we sing praises. And we understand what the Apostle Peter said, that we're made a holy priesthood to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called us. Or Colossians 1, that he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness. He transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in which there is forgiveness of sins. And then at last, we begin to give God true thanks and true praise. And our grip on our credit begins to weaken. And our human boasting begins to go silent. And at last, we begin to say to you, God, To you, God, be all the glory and all the praise through Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. In the end, that's the only test of true theology, isn't it? Does it lead our hearts to praise God? But that's not only the test of true theology, that's the test of being born again. That's a test as to whether we have received the grace of the Lord. Do our hearts give thanks to God? We cast off the boasting, the pride, and the entitlement by which we continue to walk in sin and think we have a right to do our own thing. If we've fallen down at the feet of the Lord Jesus and say, I exist for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful grace. We acknowledge that our thanks is too small, our understanding still too corrupted, our praise is too faint. And yet, O Lord, though we still remain so unworthy of you, yet you visit us in Christ and by your Spirit, and you continue to work in us to teach us how rich we are in Christ and all you've done for us. We pray, Lord, the glory of your grace towards us, that you with such great love have loved us, will resonate in our hearts and stir us up to cast off the old man of pride and to give you the glory and thanks do your name. And God, how we long for the day when at last, set free from all our sin, our minds glorified, our hearts utterly purified, we will know what it is to give you the praise and thanks you are worthy of. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.